Welcome, I'm John Lynch and I'm the host of The Discarded Compass, the podcast for the seasoned seeker. If this resonates, please subscribe to us for future episodes. So without further ado, sit back, relax and join me and my guest as we deep dive into the mystery of spiritual enlightenment. Welcome everybody to another episode of The Discarded Compass. My name's John Lynch, your host, as usual, and we've got Tom Das, who's been very gracious with his time uh, coming on the show today. Hi, Tom. How are you? I'm very well, thanks, John. Thanks for having me here. You're welcome, Tom. Um, uh, you know, you're living in Kensington, is it London? You, you you live in London and you're a doctor, is that right? Yeah, did you say Kensington? Is it Kensington? No, no, I don't. Oh. I wish I lived in Kensington. That's a very... Um, upmarket part of town okay yeah. I, I... <laughs> uh, well south kensington is, is anyway i used to live there many years ago actually oh that's probably what i um, mean, yeah but um no I, I i don't live in kensington no okay we all aspire <laughs> but to i do i am i am based in london okay. i'm based in london great stuff tom um so what 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 led you on the path or were, were you always sort of ser- searching i think were you? Well, looking back, I can say I was very inquisitive from a very young age. Um, and in that sense, I think I was always searching. But that manifested when I was younger as an interest in the world. And I used to ask myself philosophical questions, you know, even as a five or six year old, I remember, you know, what am I doing here? Why am I here? What is what is all this about? What is life about? These sorts of questions. And it didn't strike me as particularly unusual to ask those questions, but it also wasn't a spiritual thing. You know, it was just inquisitiveness of a child. But it was when I got into my, I guess, early teens, early teenage years, that I came across... um, the notion that of something called liberation or knowledge of God or some kind of experience of God or something like this. And this really got me actively seeking in a more outwardly, at least, spiritual direction. It got me interested in things like the Vedanta teachings, Hindu teachings, Buddhist teachings, Christianity, Gnosticism, meditation, yoga, all these kinds of things became an active interest of mine um, when I was a young teenager and ever since. Yeah, as you said, there was no label put on it then that it was a spiritual search as such. And labels are sort of, they only mean something when we believe in them, I suppose. Um, But there seems to be some sort of inherent... um, Maybe you're, as they say, a ripe banana when you came into this world, you know, that you had a certain seeking in another life, maybe. Because it isn't really something that's... I remember when I was a child, I used to do the same thing, wonder what was, you know, uh, this, that and the other. But um, it isn't something everybody is sort of born with, maybe. Is that the thing? Well, I mean, I've spoken to hundreds and hundreds of seekers now over the years. And most, many, if not most, have um, 
have had this seeking from a very young age. Not everyone, but many have had this seeking. They wouldn't have called it seeking at the time, but yeah, this interest or affinity or thirst or something in between these in which they're, they're looking beyond what is just presented to them, the way of life and the things around them. They're looking for something else or something like this, some sense, seeking sense, spiritual sense, something. Mm. And why this is the case? Well, I don't know. Would you have read anything in, in all those or seen anything or um, anything comes to mind in all those teachings you searched through that would kind of point to that? I'm just wondering. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, the, the traditional theory is that you're, well, traditional in Buddhism, in Hinduism, is that your past lives, um, your past lives before you're, before you were born in this life, what happened to you in your previous lives um, dictates at least much of what happens in this life. So, you know, maybe they would say, oh, you, you know, maybe you were a great spiritual seeker or a philosopher or a meditator in your previous life, you know, and maybe you came across a great teacher in your previous life. And, that, and so when you're born, you have these aptitudes this is an explanation. This kind of explanation is given. Mm. And quite, it could well be true. It's quite fascinating. Yeah. Um, so in your teenage years... Interesting. I mean, it, it doesn't is, actually... Yeah. It, it doesn't really fascinate me at all. It's not, it's not something that I'm that interested in, in terms of... It was a question for me at some point, saying, why are some people interested in this? And why are some people not interested? And I used to try and figure these things out. But then... Now, I'm not saying that's a worthless question. Mm -hmm. If that's an in, that's if that's a question that interests you, then that's a worthwhile question for you or for anyone. Mm. But for me now, it's more about what are you looking for, and how can we help you find that, rather than looking backwards, which may be of value. I'd say it's only of value if it helps us find what we're looking for. Yeah. And I think somebody else said once, you can't get it wrong, really, on the path. They, they said you can't get it wrong. You can't get it wrong, yeah. 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 Well, you can in some ways and you can't in other ways, I would say, because ultimately you can't get it wrong. Yeah. Even when you get it wrong, it's just another learning experience. But having said that, outwardly, you know, if I was giving advice to people, I wouldn't, there are certain things I might advise them and there's certain things I maybe don't advise them, you know? Like there might be a teacher over there around the corner who's a terrible teacher, who abuses all their students, who's just greedy for money and fame and things like this. I would say don't go near that teacher, just to give a, you know, mm -hmm. very black and white example. Mm -hmm. But if you found yourself going to that teacher, then that will be a part of your spiritual journey. Yeah. But at the same time, it's not something we'd recommend you do. Yeah, of course. So in some way, that, that's that's all I'm saying, really. Yeah. Um. So teenage years, um, 
did you have aspirations, uh, ambitions in life? Obviously, you're a doctor, um, so you must have had some sort of ambition. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, I wanted to, I had several sort of desires. Um, one was to, I really wanted to do something that helps people. I was really interested in suffering and alleviating people's suffering. And when I was trying to figure out, you know, people often asked me when I was in secondary school, oh, what do you want to do when you get older? What do you want to do when you get older? It's one of those big questions that people keep on asking you, right? Mm. Same probably happened to you. And, you know, you're, you're selecting what, you know, your, all your various exams here in the UK, you have GCSEs and A-levels. And I was thinking about it and I wanted to do something that interested me that fascinated me. Um, and I wanted to do something that helped people in some way. And I became very interested in the causes of suffering, not just from the point of view of an individual, but also on the level of populations. You know, I, I started becoming, this is when I was a bit older than my teens, to be, maybe my late teens, early 20s. I was in medical school already by then. I became interested in not just medicine, but also interested in economics and history and politics because I wanted to understand why is there poverty in the world? Why is why do people suffer? Why is this why why is there all this inequality? Why are these environment you know environmental issues starts to become very important? Um, you know, eighties, nineties, seventies, eighties, nineties. Um, the environmental movement was going on and. You know, I became interested. Why, why are we polluting the earth? You know, all this kind of stuff. And for me, I also wanted to survive. I also, I also wanted to. Um, I was never int- I was, I was never interested in money. Never interested in earning lots of money. Something I count myself very lucky. You know, it's not one of those things. I, I know many people want to earn a lot of money. But for, for, luckily for me, I never had that desire that I wanted to earn lots of money. But I did have it, and I didn't have a desire to be famous. I just never really cared for that. I've always wanted to help people. But I did want to survive. I wanted to earn enough to give myself a comfortable life. Maybe not comfortable, but just to live. That was important to me as well, security. Because um, some of them on, in my family... Um, my parents and my grandparents, many of my family members had incredibly insecure lives, you know, um, extreme poverty, um, no money, no food, you know, and I heard all these stories of what happened, you know, to people in my family, about how they struggled. And I didn't want that for me. There's big, so there's a big drive for security. And um, so I also wanted to choose a career that I felt I could, um, that would earn, earn me, be able to earn me a livelihood as well and give me some kind of stability, security. So that's another drive I had. And then through all this stuff was the spiritual drive. Mm. I also wanted to be happy. I also wanted to discover a spiritual truth because I had, I, I, I knew, I had a sense there was something in it. I didn't wasn't sure, but I had a sense, and so this was my, this became my really big interest, you know, alongside my other interests. So these different strands going on when I was a younger person. 
a child and a young adult. Yeah, I could identify with that. I mean, I've I'm sort of in that situation. I you know, I have my own business and things and there's always a drawback to this. It's always back to this, you know. It's the most important thing. The rest seems to be a play, you know. Oh, when you say drawback, you mean you're always drawn back to Oh, it? constantly, yeah. It it's constantly. Mm. It's it's the big thing. It's the yeah. only thing really that's worth anything, you know. If it's that was yeah. a way to I could put it, you know. Um and it, it's it's lovely to be able to talk like this. I mean, years ago, you, you couldn't do this. This teaching wasn't in the West. There was nothing heard of non-duality. You know, the Eastern teachings didn't reach us. If you were lucky to find a book, you were lucky um, on it. Um, yeah, but you did find those books and you did go searching uh, through those books. Lucky you. And there's yeah. a lot of teachers you named in your yeah. interview and on your website. Sri Ramana Maharshi, uh, and there was another Indian teacher i forget it what was his name swami swami vivekananda yeah talk about him talk about yeah what, so what, i mean what, yeah sorry, sorry yeah, John. sure yeah i'm just a bit excited to know what you'd say <laughs> yeah um yeah i hadn't come across ramana when i was younger I hadn't come across i didn't come ramana who i now consider to be my guru my teacher my light my love um, I hadn't come across him until I was much older. And um, you got me thinking there because you said there weren't any books on non-duality. Non-duality was the first sort of, apart from apart from the Bible and the New Testament and the, and the Gospels, which really inspired me. When, I, when we started secondary school, we were all given a... New, a copy of the New Testament and the Psalms. It was Gideon's Bible. I don't know if you've seen them before. No. They're often in, I don't know if they're so much anymore, but when I was younger, I used to find them in hotel rooms. You go to a hotel and you open a drawer, a drawer and there'll be like a Gideon's Bible in there. And they gave us a New Testament and Psalms and it, and it, it, it has like a, a way you can read the Bible and if you have questions, it will direct you to certain verses. So I used to read that stuff before I came across any of the Eastern stuff. Um, I should explain, my family are a Hindu family, but we weren't really taught the, you know, the deeper truths of Hinduism as, as a child. You know, that wasn't taught to me in my family. Um, but then I found a book by Swami Vivekananda and this book is the book that flipped my world upside down, you know, really got me spiritually seeking. It was a book called Raja Yoga. Raja Yoga. Raja Yoga, which means the king of yogas or the kingly yoga. Raja means king. And um, yoga means to unite or to bring together. It's got the same root as the word religion has in the West. So yoga basically means uh, bring, becoming one with God. So it's the royal way, the king, the king of ways, and the Raja Yoga. Yoga means to become one with God, to pull, to, to come together, to bring together. It's the same what, as what religion means. And this book, I mean, it's not a book I necessarily re necessarily recommend to people now, to be honest. But it was the first book that I came across, that and the Bhagavad Gita. And these were on my parents' bookshelf. And 
I think I'm pretty sure in Raja Yoga explains what the word Advaita means, which means non-duality. So this is one of the first teachings I came across. But thinking about it now, I, my parents probably only had those books on the bookshelf because of our Indian heritage. And Swami Vivekananda, if you go to the part of India where my parents are from, he's like a national hero. You know, everyone knows of him. And he was probably the first or at least one of the first people to bring non-dual teachings over to the West. And he did, he did that in the late 1800s. It might have, been, might have been the turn of the 20th century too. I think it was the late 1800s. And um, he, he went to the US and gave some talks in the US. Uh, I'm not sure if he came to the UK or not actually and um yeah he was very inspiring for many people and a whole load of westerners took up um vedanta studies studies in non-duality based on him and there have been several waves of people from the west or people from india you know coming to the west or these sorts of things um but yes i i don't know if the the books I read they were they were published in India, but they were in this in my, on my parents' bookshelf in London because I was I was born I'm born in the UK, mm. so I'm thinking yeah probably you wouldn't have access to them or more more difficult to have access. if you go to India. I remember we used to have several trips to India, and when I was in my yeah when I was a teenager whenever we went. I would fill my suitcase up with all these books because you could buy them so cheaply, all these spiritual books, Swami Vivekananda, Ramakrishna, you know, Krishnamurti, even some Osho. I used to buy all the books and I, you know, I couldn't carry that many because I had to pack my clothes and stuff as well. But I used to, um, and you know, I used to exasperate my family members. Like, Why are you reading all this stuff? You know, they didn't want me to read this stuff particularly. Mm. You know, most of my family just thought it was a, a phase I was passing through. So now they're now they're acknowledging that it's it wasn't just a phase, but <laughs> it can be unnerving for someone that's in the tiger's mouth as such, for an onlooker to see. Uh, I, I was reading something else uh, of another uh, guru, uh, as such, and um, I think it was Asho. Yeah, it was Osho when he was younger. Um, he he was like like yourself, full on into it, and the family were like got so used to it that it was like just normal. And then when Osho became normal, they thought he was abnormal. He had a he had a season of of normality as such, but something was happening for him. But um, yeah, it's it's not the the it's not the standard way of living. Um, but then again, um. As I said before, it's the big thing. Um, it's the big thing. And reading those books after your teenage years, there must have been some awakenings, some experiences. When did you find, when did you sort of get a glimpse of, I'm onto something here or such? Well, I, straight away, I felt something. I thought, wow, this is amazing. I didn't have a realisation, but... I felt there's something here. I need to explore this. 
this is fascinating. This is, it really just, um, you know, when they say you've got the bug, mm. you know, I, I had the bug, you know, I, I was just hooked. But it wasn't till I was 18 that I had my first sort of glimpse of, you know, I'd already been seeking for a few years. So I'd already been reading these books for a few years by then. And I'd already been meditating and at home and doing yoga. I'd been, I'd been doing yoga from a younger age, to be honest. I was taught yoga when I was under, when I was younger than 10. I think I was about eight or nine. My mother taught me yoga and pranayama, which is yogic breathing, basically. And I'd been doing some martial arts as well since I was about six, which weren't obviously spirit. The way I was taught yoga and the way I was taught martial arts wasn't really a spiritual thing, but there is there are spiritual elements to it. Um, I was I was doing these things for health, basically. You know, yoga is good for your health. Martial arts is good for your coordination, good for your health. You can defend yourself maybe as well. And, um, but when I was 18, I had this experience of, of everything becoming clear. These texts, these books, these things that I was reading, suddenly I could see what they were pointing to. I thought, at least. I could see what they are pointing to. Everything seemed so clear. Everything made sense. There was no... Um, sense of a me. There was no sense of an other. Everything was as it is and perfect and whole. And there was no noise. It was silent. There was, there was no time. Um, everything was as it was. Everything is as it is. And it was like perfection. I've never experienced anything like that before. And it, everything seems so simple and effortless. And then, of course, after a sh very short amount of time, I don't know how long, maybe 10 minutes, maybe 20 minutes, I don't know, but a short amount of time, it, my mind came back. I started thinking about it, started analyzing it. And then for the next few years, I was chasing that. I didn't have an experience like that again for quite some time. I just wanted that experience again. So I started reading, reading, reading more books. I started to do some more practices and became more frenetic, you know? So, but that was when I was 18. That, that was, that, that's when I realized for myself, oh, there's definitely, it's not just, this is something I'm interested in. I need to explore. I think there's something going true here. It was like, now I know there's something true here. So it went up, it ramped up a level. Did it feel as if something became real? Did it feel as if something became real? Maybe. I wouldn't have used those words. It was more like, imagine you're looking for treasure. You're on, a, you're on a treasure hunt, yeah? And you're following this, you know, old map that's kind of ripped and torn and maybe, you know, paste, maybe, you know, it's stuck together. 
there's a tattered old map and you're following it and you think i want this treasure but um, there's a there's a doubt in the back of your mind is that does this treasure really exist you're pretty sure it does you've you know you've heard the rumors the myths the legend from reliable sources different sources you know sources on because the thing about these religious texts is they all say the same thing or similar things but they're all geographic they all arose in geographically different regions in different times and different places so this convinced them this is part of the thing that convinced me oh all these people are sort of talking about similar things but they didn't know each other like a science in science you can discover the same principle of whatever like gravity whatever it is that you're examining it doesn't matter where you are you could be in the americas you could be in europe you could be in asia you could still discover you could still find out how um you know the dynamics of gravity and things like this same with spirituality it seemed but there's a doubt in the back of my mind is this treasure i'm looking for does it really exist you know and what happened to me when i had that experience like okay now i know it exists so i wouldn't say it, it, it i wouldn't say it became real because it was always real it just um cemented something that i already thought was true but now I was 100%. Before I was like, I don't know, 90% sure, 95% sure, 80% sure that was there. I wasn't completely sure. And this experience when I was 18 just knocked out that, la- that any any le- level of uncertainty. I thought, no, now, now I know because I've had this experience. Never, never thought this experience was possible. Now I've experienced something. This is true. There's something here now, for sure. I can't deny it at all. So, life went on, and that the mind came in again. Um. So you're trying to get back to that space. Obviously, it's like the carrot in front of you, and you're chasing it. And that's it. Yeah. And it's inevitable. It's of course it has to happen. Maybe. Um. I'm not control over it happening. Is another question. You know, it's um, it's a bit like this is God's dream, and even God can't do anything about it. It's it's what can be done anyway. Uh, it's quite. It's just I love going down the rabbit holes like that. It's just it's fine. What's not there? Um. So life went on for you, um, and you're trying to get back to that space. What happened? That final understanding happened for you, or did anything happen? As such. Well, I mean, for me, seeking there went on for another 10 years or so, you know. So I wasn't really that successful. And I was trying to probably recreate that state that I experienced when I was 18 because that just became a focus, a reference point. So inevitably, I couldn't help but think about that experience. And then, I, then over time, I had these always these other types of experiences through meditating. Sometimes not through meditating. Sometimes just through contemplating, or you know, I'm at a cafe or just going for a walk. But sometimes on the meditation cushion. Um, sometimes when reading a book, you know, I have all these sort of experiences, and but they all came and went. They all came and went. You know, I had I had other sorts of experiences that weren't quite the same as that first one, but similar. You know, 
and um, they all came and went. And for me, it, it all changed when I came across Ramana Maharishi's teachings. And it wasn't really even his teachings. It was I started to feel, when I started to read about him and learn about him and read his teachings, I didn't really like his teachings that much, actually. But I started to feel love for him. And I started to feel his presence or what I thought was his presence in my life. Which And... I was not looking for some kind of guru. I was not into gurus. I was not into that kind of thing at all. I was. I wanted to be more like the Buddha and discover something for myself, like the Buddha did. This is what this is what really attracted me. But then I found in myself feeling a huge amount of love and devotion for him, for Ramana. And then this took over my life. And this is what led me to my realization. So it wasn't the reading the books, it wasn't the practices or any of that stuff. Maybe that all, that all had a role to play. Mm-hmm. I think it probably did have a role to play because I didn't. I I've discovered that I wasn't finding what I was looking for in all these other things. I think that was helpful to me. I think I probably wouldn't have, I think if I had come across Ramana's teachings earlier, I would have probably have rejected them in favor of what my mind perceived to be more logical teachings. Because I didn't think Ramana's teachings were very watertight. There were lots of problems I could see with them. And in fact, when I first came across Ramana's teachings a couple of years prior, um, a couple of years prior to f- feeling this devotion for him, I did reject his teachings. I just thought it sounds like a load of rubbish or mediocre, mediocre teachings. I can see lots of problems with them. My intellect could find lots of holes in the teachings, lots of problems. So I just rejected the teachings. But a couple of years later, I came across his teachings again. And I still didn't like his teachings. But then this love for him started happening. And this is what I credit for help for leading to my awakening or realization or whatever you want to call it. Tom, can you could you elaborate on that that total resonance with Ramana's teaching and the love you describe? Yeah, sure. Um it's funny actually because unlike what happened to me when I was 18, where when I what the experience I had when I was eighteen, I kept on thinking about it lots. This I, I very rarely think about this, so this is not something I can easily talk about because I actually don't have a huge amount of memory of what happened to me either. But I can I'm happy to tell you what happened. What happened is that I started to feel a love and trust for him, and I started to feel his presence in my life. And I started to have this overwhelming sense of devotion. And it wasn't always there. It used to rise up in me sometimes. Sometimes, I don't know, actually, it it just used to pulse up into me and rise up into me and overcome me. 
And I used to have these sort of fits of devotion and love and tears and sometimes suffering because there's longing. There was longing, longing for his love, longing to be with him. And it, But that suffering didn't feel like suffering. It felt like it felt very right, very... I felt like it was a purifying or a catharsis. It was everything was coming out. Everything that needed to come out was coming out. You know, the tears, the pain, the anguish, the love, the longing, the desire, the pain. And um, a part of me, the my intellectual, my intellect was basically saying, "What? What's happening with you, Tom? What are you doing?" Um, you know, this is not what you want. You wanted to discover the truth for yourself. And, you know, why you're falling in love with what you think is Ramana, but who knows what you're doing? You know, that you could be, this could be a complete delusion. You don't know if this is Ramana's presence. You don't know what you're doing. So my mind was saying things like this. But I knew that my heart, or my, I'll just say my heart, because I don't know how else to say it right now. My heart just ignored the mind. I could hear the mind saying all these um, objections, but I didn't care. I knew this This felt, I didn't know it was right. It felt so wholesome. It felt so right. And I didn't care if it was deluded or not deluded. I didn't care about any of that stuff. I didn't care about the mind's objections. Nothing like this has ever happened to me before. And it's not what I was interested in. And then that just carried on. And then um, at some point, and I don't know exactly when, I realized I hadn't been suffering for quite a long time, maybe one or two years. And there was no sense of, um, there's no sense of individuality left. And I couldn't, I couldn't even tell you when that happened or how that happened. And during this time, I still used to read Ramana's, I call him Bhagavan. Bhagavan basically means beloved. And it's also a word that implies or means God. So we could like, you know, dear Lord, you know, my love, my Lord, something like this. Bhagavan. I was also reading his teachings. And these teachings that didn't seem to make sense to me, I could now see how they make sense. I could see how they were like the perfect teaching. And many people think I'm just being biased because I have this overwhelming love and gratitude towards Bhagavan Ramana and his expression. But genuinely, genuinely, I think it's just an amazing teaching, including the words. And yes, there are flaws in the logic sometimes, because, but that's because you can't um, use logic to attain this. So there, when you try and use logic, there are always going to be problems with that logic. And sometimes those teachings which are completely watertight in their logic, they're often overly intellectual and they miss the point. And that's the type, they're the kinds of teachings I was attracted to. But they are the types of teachings that were leading nowhere, you know. And that's why the seeking went on for like a decade or so. <laughs> so I'm just very grateful that Bhagavan came into my life for some reason. He, it felt like more that he inserted himself into my life. 
maybe my years of pining and desiring and searching and seeking invoked him to come into my life somehow. But I see it more like he came into my life. He came into my heart. He took over, he took me over and he shoved me out, you know, and he came in. And so it's grace. It's just total grace. I can't tell you what I did. I can tell you what happened to me. This is what it's like. I get the sense, and I want to ask the question, through all that suffering, was that the ending of the search, the suffering and the turmoil? Was that the actual ending of the search? So is your question, was the suffering the, the ending? You, you were going through, the, when you had that awakening uh, with Bhagavan, the, you, were, you were describing it as a lot of suffering, a lot of turmoil, and, and it wasn't to you. It, was, it felt like something else, like a sacrifice, like I, I don't understand fully what you, you were talking about. I've only a sense of what you're talking about, Tom, but well, mm. I'm just wondering for the viewers, I'm just wondering myself as well, was that, it seemed like it was the end of the seeking was happening. There was a death of something and a, a clarity of something. I mean, maybe else. it was the dying. Yeah. Maybe it, w- it wasn't the end, but it was maybe like a process leading to the end. You know, hmm. it was like a giving up, but it was it was it was like a cleansing. It was like a cleansing out. So when you know when you if you clean out all the muck out of something, all the dirt, that dirt comes out, and but it doesn't feel bad to bring up all that dirt. In fact, it can like, in some way, it can be quite satisfying to, you know, if you, if you clean something and you, you mm. uh, there these videos on YouTube I've, I've seen, I'm sure I've seen some, I can't remember exactly what they show. They'll show things like, you know, squeezing toothpaste out of, um, you know, what's the, what's it called? A toothpaste tube. That's it. You know, and like some stuff's coming and be quite satisfying to watch, you know, to watch the impurities coming out. It was, it was like that, you know. Actually, everybody rushing to the bathroom to squeeze the toothpaste. Yeah. Or, it's uh, like that, you know, or, you know. Um, <laughs> so we all need a good squeeze, you know, Tom. Removing, <laughs> <laughs> removing impurities okay. and all the dirt comes out. I mean, toothpaste is not a great example because it's not dirt, but. Yeah, it's like you know, a cleansing. Yeah. There's something satisfying. There was, there, it, it was, I wouldn't say it was satisfying, actually. That's probably just a, I don't know why I'm talking about that. It, it, it was outwardly, if you saw me in those moments, I'd have been crying or wailing. You know, I should mention that I was often lying on the floor, prostrating on the floor, spontaneous prostrations and bowing and praying sometimes happy, sometimes sad. Often, actually, I'm reminding myself now as I'm talking about it, often I'll just be, um, I'd walk into a room um, and this silence would just overpower me as well. And I'll just, I'll literally sometimes just walk into the middle of my lounge and I'll just stand in the middle of the lounge for like an hour, two hours, I'll just be I'll just be standing there. This sort of stuff happened, you know. And when it, you know, I remember sometimes at work I had this feeling come over me. I just ignored it because I needed to work. I needed to, 
you know, do my job, help patients. But then when I was at home and this feeling came over me, I allowed it to come into me. And if it sort of led me to silence, I'd just be still. I just, so that, that used to happen too. And it wasn't sort of formal meditation, but it was very powerful. And it was, it felt no different to me. There was a, well, there was a quality when I was prostrating on the ground, crying or whatever I was doing, there was a quality about that that was the same as the quality of the silence. It didn't feel like two separate things I was doing. It was just it was being um, grasped or um, like held. You know, you're, it's, it felt like um, possessed almost. <laughs> Not possessed. Grabbed hold of by Bergon. You know, it felt like he had, he was entering into me and and um, f- compelling me to love him and adore him in a way that didn't feel like like being compelled against my will. It felt like I was I was compelled to do this and I wanted to do it. I don't know. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. My words are not. I don't know if my words are accurately conveying what I'm talking about, but it's like, um, maybe you've got better word that you can use. Do you know what I'm trying to say? Yeah. You're, um, yeah, it's, it's like you, you had the mind going on and then you had that grace in operation as well. Yeah. Yeah. That's quite profound. Actually. It's quite something. It's um, it's like something I don't want to talk about, you know, because you can't. If you talk about it, you kind of dirty it again, you know. Yeah. Um, I just thinking as well with the, you, you had a path of devotion, Tom. It seems really. I mean, intellectual pursuits early on. And then, I mean, I was interested in the intellectual path. I wasn't interested in the devotional path. That's the thing. Yeah, yeah. Mm, but yeah. you're right. It's the devotion that um, the intellectual path. Yeah, it was the devotion that really led to liberation. Bhakti. Bhakti means love, devotion, as I'm sure you know. Bhakti. And then it seems that. If we try, if we try real hard, we might get the devotion and the coming of Bhagawan, you know, or the grace of the Guru will will appear. It's probably unique for everybody, isn't it? Um, but um, how do you teach now? Having that, usually somebody would go to a Guru and they'd have a particular way of talking about something. Maybe Nisargadatta, they'd hammer it out like Nisargadatta. Um, you know, there's different slants, different ways of going at it, but usually it's sort of the disciple turns into the guru and he and he starts talking like the guru used to talk as well, portrays it that mm-hmm. way. But how can you convey the message seeing your devotee of Ramana? I mean, how does that work in your teachings? Well, honestly, my I just I just turn up, honestly. You know, before this interview started you said, I think it was before this interview started, you said, oh, you know, you probably know how to answer the questions. You probably answer them. 
you know, hundred hundred times before. But honestly, I don't remember my previous answers to these questions. I just and I just turn up. I've realized I just turn up and then I trust whatever I say is what is meant to be said. That's it. So I don't and you know, if you've watched my videos, you'll see their recurring patterns, recurring themes. But for me, every time I say it, it's 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 like it's the first time I'm saying it. It's obviously not the first time I'm saying it because I've said these things before. But for me, it's like it's the first time every time. So when you said that to me uh, before we started this interview, um, I was th- I thought to myself, "Oh no, it's not like that for me at all. I don't I don't know what I'm going to say. It's different every time." And the questions you ask me about my um, awakening and my realization and this kind of stuff probably it might be interesting. Well. <laughs> Maybe someone, maybe someone out there will find it interesting to look up all the times I've spoken about it. Because probably every time I'll say something slightly differently or something new will come up as I remember something new. Yeah, yeah, of course. You know. Anyway, so I just, I just um, turn up. But one thing I've realized is that um, Bhagavan's teachings are very good. They're very good. So I probably started to speak not quite like him, but a bit more like him as my body mind has got used to sharing this in maybe more efficient ways. So So I'm not, I'm not the most verbally efficient teacher, you know? I I think it's, uh, I think it's, it's very easy to understand and comprehend, um, quite easily what you're saying. Um, there's so let's get to the nitty gritty. The mind. What can we do or not do about the the mind and the suffering, Tom, which you spoke about? Well, the nitty gritty. Let's get to the nitty gritty. I would say, and this might, I hope I'm not being too picky when I say this. I would say the nitty gritty is nothing to do with the mind. Let's get down to it. Let's not worry about the mind. Yeah. Let's come back to ourself. The key is not to worry about the mind, which is ultimately an illusion, but to discover what we are. And then the mind will drop off by itself. And this love affair I had with Bhagavan, it was a love affair. It still is a love affair. That was actually me coming to know myself. I didn't realize it because I wasn't putting it into words like that. But it's the same as I was, I thought I was going to Bhagavan. And I was. But when I went to Bhagavan, I realized, oh, I've just come back to myself. Because I hadn't verbalized it, I wouldn't have said that to you like that. And conceptually, the framework, the conceptual framework was, oh, I'm in love with Bhagavan. But actually, I just came back to myself. All you have to do is come back to yourself. That's the nitty gritty. But when the mind is racing and thoughts are believed in and are given power and belief, 
it's very difficult to go back to yourself. And it normally seems like the mind would, would even gain more power if there was effort involved. How can it be effortlessness? It's just a bit of a... Sorry. Yeah, it's paradox. Sorry, go on, John. I'm I'm interrupting you. I apologize. No, it's okay. These things happen. No, it's fine. That's that's the question, yeah. Yes. Well, it's effortless to come back to ourselves. How can how could you be effortless? What, what what would be a point where you could give to that? Well, what's easier than just being what you are? Racing mind as well. If there was a racing mind happening, well, why, why why worry about the racing mind? Why not come back to what you are? There seems to be just going through my own history that if I was taught that it would be come back to myself. Why would I want to go back to myself? I'm suffering. This shouldn't be the case. Because when you're with yourself, it's pure happiness. It's peace. It's love. It's bliss. Hmm. What is the mind, Tom? Or do you go in, do you go teach? I mean, non-duality points to the thinking about the mind and how useless it is. You You don't go for that? Yeah, I mean, the thing is, is that when people ask me this question... The answer they get um, is, I've noticed basically when I respond, I'm not just responding to the question, I respond to the person who asked the question. You see? Mm-hmm. So you're asking me the question, this is my response for you, really. You know, We don't have to worry about what the mind is. Why do we worry about what the mind is? Yeah, Learning about the mind is mind, more mind. Mm. That's not going to help. So come back to your own being. This is what you are. What you really are is formless being. Formless being. Happiness. Divine, happy, formless being. You need to come back to that. It means you let go of the mind. You let go of all the things you see and feel and touch, taste, hear, smell, think, know. You know if, you, if you're interested in that, then you'll go down that wormhole, you'll suffer. That's called suffering. But when you let go of all that stuff, you just come back to simple being, which is yourself, and happy, peaceful, your happy, peaceful self, then all that will naturally start to go away. Unless you do that, though, unless you come back to yourself, come back to being, and let go of mind, the mind will just continue forever. So what is the beingness without the mind? It doesn't matter. You don't need to worry about what it is. You need to come back to it. But if we don't know what it is, how could we go back to it? I'm just asking oh. for for the, what somebody might ask you such. So, by the way, I do know the problems with what I'm saying. And I do know what you're saying as well. I'm kind of, answer, I can see the answers that are coming out today are kind of... <laughs> Less intellectual. You see? Could you talk a bit why that is? I mean... I think it's because um, what's happening today is there's a pointing that this is not going to be discovered in the mind. 
and even answer. So you're giving answers and stuff, answering your questions, because often I'll just answer the questions much more straightly, you know. But by giving you answers, I'm actually going further into the mind. I think that's what's happening. See, everybody knows what they are. The mind can never know what you are, but you always know what you are, but not with the mind. Intuitively, we we always know how to come back to ourselves. The mind doesn't know. I like that. That kind of popped out there. The the mind doesn't know. Obviously, the mind doesn't know. Yeah. It objectifies. So the mind can never know it? how to come back to itself. Yeah, it always objectifies. Well, how do I do it? How do I do it? What is this self that I'm coming back to? Mm-hmm. Tell me what to do, Tom. If you're saying come back to yourself, you have to explain what that means. Otherwise, how can I do it? Mm-hmm. But it's not true. Mm-hmm. The truth is, you know how to do it, just like how you know how to walk. You know how to breathe. You know. Without anyone having to give you instructions, you know how to walk, you know how to breathe. Yeah. And the same way you know how to come back to yourself. But then the mind goes, no, I don't know how to do it. You have to tell me how to do it. But that's the mind getting its foot in the door again. Mm-hmm. You see? Mm-hmm. The mind says, what is myself? How, w- w- just define it for me so I know how to come back to it. Yeah. No. So it can know it. I mean, it's ridiculous to think that something could know, like something could know God, something that's greater than it. We just we use the word God because we have to use the word of something. You know, then there would be something that wants to look to something greater than it and know something greater than it. And even logically, it doesn't make sense, does it? It's just, it just doesn't make sense logically even. Um, um So, is it that simple, really? Yeah. Is yeah. it that just simple? Need to, just need to know yourself and your own, in, in, in your purity. Now, things that can help, because if you've got a very busy mind, it's difficult to do that, because habitually, you're going to get drawn back into your mind again and again and again and again. And this is why having a teacher can be so important. Now, I didn't have a teacher. That's what I was thinking. Well, I was going to ask. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. But I had Bhagwan's presence, mm-hmm. and that's all you need is your own. Bhagwan's presence is just my own presence or your own presence. Bhagwan is inside each and every one of us, just our own very own self. I call that I call that Bhagwan Ramana. But the, the the whole point of the teaching is just to be with that, be with him, be with yourself. And you know how to do that intuitively anyway. But one of the things that can help, especially if the mind is strong, is coming to satsang regularly with the teacher. And regular attendance, you'll start, you'll start to awaken your spiritual sense. Because self-inquiry is like an art. There's an art of self-inquiry. It's a, it's a sense. It's not like a, it's not something that I can write down the instructions. You can follow it and drill it and get better and better at it, like you could, another skill. Mm-hmm. It's more like an art form, you know? You get a sense of it. You have, to, like, um, maybe in days gone by, to learn an art, you'd you'd live with the teacher, and you'd learn, that through the teacher's life, you'd learn a craft or an art. It wouldn't just be like something you do, you, you can learn from a book. So there's a fragrance, a perfume of this teaching that rubs off onto the seeker. And satsang 
attendance at satsang regularly is one of the best ways to do this. Because if we go to satsang regularly, the teacher, through their presence, will diffuse the teaching, share the teaching non-verbally with you, and you'll get a sense of it non-verbally. And the verbal teachings will also go into you and attack it on the level of the mind. So you get attacked, (laughs) spiritually attacked from two directions in a good way. You know, non-verbally and verbally. You're verb- non-verbally and verbally. You get a, a, a spiritual. You're spiritually assaulted by these teachings that blast out the ego. So I, I was going to say, what's the non-verbal teaching like? What a ridiculous question. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> yeah. Um. The non-verbal teaching is like <laughs> presence coming over you, seeping into you making you happy, showing you what you truly are. Your effortless state of being yourself. Not a stupid question at all. Not a stupid question at all. No questions are stupid. Eventually, you see all questions are stupid. But until then, no questions are stupid. If if you feel like you want to ask a stupid question, then it's probably a good thing to ask. Because you know? there are lots You'll of questions. You'll a lot of emails. People... <laughs> <laughs> uh, but in, in, in satsang, people often ask a question. They, they say, look, I know I don't need to ask this question, but they feel that they need to ask it still. It's a nagging question. Sometimes they just need to ask the question. Sometimes just asking the question itself is all they need. Mm. They don't even need, they just need someone to hear the question or they need to express it. And then sometimes they just need a, an answer. That, that, and that, that's what they need. And that's enough. It's like there's a death in the true question, isn't there? You know? Mm. Yeah. Yes, that's right. Because that happened there when I said that, looking back. You know, when you're when you're describing that now, that's what happened. Tell me, tell me what happened. Well, it was like a death in the question when I said it was the city is probably a stupid question, but blah blah blah. There was a death happened in the question. What do you mean? Well, the death happened by saying it, of somehow. What died? No idea. No idea. The question. <laughs> the question. The question. The question. itch. Yeah. Maybe, but there was like a feeling of it was a bit like of a, an in, a sense of what you described in the suffering and the turmoil. It yeah. felt a bit like that. A sense I've no idea exactly what you went through, but it it sensed it was a sense of that, like you know. Yeah, you no, know, I can. I feel that you do have a sense of what I went through. I think you do have a sense of what I went through. That's my sense. <sighs> My sense is that you do have a sense of what I went through. You do know what I'm talking about. That's my sense. My sense is that small death in that question there is what I went through. It's the same thing, maybe a different degree to a different degree. Oh, a different same, degree, yeah. yeah. That death, that dying. That's it. So that, that's that's something to, to remember, folks. There are no stupid questions. Yeah, very good. Until we realise they're all stupid. The answers too. 
you know, the answers will be discover all the questions and answers are all stupid, meaning ultimately this is all distraction. You know, because the only the only answer is in ourselves. So the questions and answers typically take us away from ourselves. But sometimes through asking a question, as you say, we ask the question, and in the asking, it brings us closer to ourselves. And sometimes the answers bring us closer to ourselves as well. They take us take us back to what we are. So, would there be a particular discernment to be made in the questions we ask? I'm wondering. No, we don't have to be too discerning. Yeah, I mean, I think the only the only exceptions are there's some people who are very intellectual, and they they just, they just sort of fire questions out without thinking, or their mind fires out questions without thinking. And I would just say to those people, don't just fire out questions without thinking. Take your time, and until you find a question that actually is important to you, rather than just asking on an intellectual level. You know, in a superficial way, wait till you actually have a question that has some sort of meaning for you. If someone asks a question, let's like say you're an interviewer, and you're just asking a list of questions because that's what's in your clipboard of questions to ask, and you weren't really interested in those questions, but you're just asking it because that's your job. See, then, then the teaching doesn't respond to that very well. Yeah. You know. Yeah. No, Tom doesn't respond to those questions, not because he's being mean or anything, but because the the incentive for Tom to respond is in the, is the the zeal of the questioner. The energy of the question is what gives it Tom the energy to respond. So that's what I'd say. You know, just. When you ask a question, is make sure it means something for you. Even if it's a silly question, even if you think you know the answer, some people say, "Tom, I I already know the intellectual answer, answer to this question, but I want to ask you the question anyway." Then two things often happen: one, the answer is not always what they think it is, and two, even if it is what they think it is, sometimes that process of asking and receiving is that's something else happens. You see, the teaching is like magic. Mm. It's a magical teaching. It's a living teaching. But the teaching isn't in in remembering concepts. It's got nothing to do with that. Even the questions and answers utilize concepts. What they point to and what they and what they take you to is something that's non conceptual. It's not about remembering things. You don't need to remember anything in the mind to be what you are. To be the formless, expansive grace that you are. Always. I was going to ask about the sense of time because the time seem, mind seems to be time. Do you have any sense of time or does it happen spontaneously for such life for you? Well, as long as there's movement, that's time. Okay. But this movement, let's say, it it exists within timelessness. With realization, 
there is no time. It's, it's, we go beyond time. We go beyond time and space, which are the same thing. Or time and space are aspects of the same thing. They're both aspects of the dream, the illusion. While we're seeking, when we start getting in tune with this teaching, we start to see how this movement in time and space occurs within in timelessness. It's surrounded by and suffused and pervaded by timelessness. Everything is pervaded by timelessness. But then when we realize the truth, when we come home to ourselves, to Bhagavan, then there is no time anymore. Now that is inexplicable. It's unexplainable in words. It's unfathomable by the mind. Can't understand that. There's no time at all. This is that's sometimes called eternity. Always, never. Yeah. I don't know what that means. Sorry, I've no idea either. Just come to think of it, because <laughs> that's what I thought too. Well, if you if you if you like it, then that's good enough for me. Um, I don't know what that means, but if you know what it means, or if you like it, that's that's all that matters. There's only a sense of what I think it means to me, you know. Um, it sounded cool. Hmm. <laughs> and then we put labels on things and we kind of destroy it, don't we? Um, no, no. Hmm? We don't destroy it with labels. No, not at all. You label it as much as you want. It's. I encourage people to talk about it and use their right labels that they want to use. If you want to call it God, you call it God. If you want to call it being, you call it being. But don't let these words um, confine, you know, these words are expressions of a reality, not um, delineations or constraints upon the reality, you know. Mm-hmm. These, these, these words are beautiful words to use. Use, or use all the words you want. Nothing will destroy this. Nothing will dirty these things, as you said earlier. He said, you don't like to talk about it because it's almost as if it dirties it. It doesn't. If anything, it glorifies it. We can glorify this this teaching with words. This is why scriptures exist, partly. Poetic outpourings, instructions, these glorify ourselves. Words are not a dirty thing. Sometimes I try to, it, it, I like, well, like yourself, I don't like to see people suffering either. And I always try to, well, wait for a time that might come up in another podcast as well to say to the the, the person being interviewed, what would you say to people that are suffering and how can they alleviate suffering? I just turn up and see what happens. And I hope that I say the right thing at the right time. And and I was, I was going to say usually I do, but honestly, I have no way of knowing, actually. You know, sometimes Tom ends up in a situation where he says the right thing at the right time, and other times he's just not skilled enough to do or say what is right 
for that person, but he tries his best. You know, how do you alleviate suffering? Well, it depends what's what's going on, doesn't it? Mm. Is there any you know, sort of if a child comes up to you and says, "I've cut my finger," you know, you might usher them. You say, "Oh, there, there, it's okay." You might take them to a tap and clean their finger, dry it, put a blaster on it, right? Mm-hmm. And then if if someone else says, "Oh, you know, this person's teasing me," you, you know. What do you do? You just do what you, you do the best you can do with the knowledge and skills you have. That's all you can do as a person. And inevitably, at some point, your knowledge and skills will be limited. Well, your knowledge and skills are always limited, but they'll, they'll be sometimes that your knowledge and skills will be not enough for what the situation demands. So you just try your best with what you have. And other times your knowledge and skills will be enough for what the situation demands and you will successfully deal with something. And sometimes you won't. But we muddle on, we get by. That's what that's all we can do, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and what would be some of your, your favourite pointers as such that you could, you could tell us about? You mean spiritually or... Spiritually, um, yeah. Or even devotionally or even anything at all that comes to mind. I'll tell you what comes to mind, actually, um, is often, recently, I've been talking to people who spiritualise practical problems. So what I mean by that is, um, like, say they've got a problem with their finances or they're having a problem with a relationship, whether that's with a romantic partner or a child, you know, a son or daughter or a spouse or a parent or a work colleague. And some people spiritualize these things. So rather than saying, well, rather than looking at the mechanics of what's happening and try and solve the problem on the level it is, they will try and apply some kind of spiritual teaching. They'll say, oh, well, if I can know who I am, you know, then maybe my relationship with my wife will get better or my money issues will get better. Could get worse. You could leave you. (laughs) Yeah, could get worse. Uh, You know, but my point is that like, for for example, in people often, it's sometimes more helpful to look at the mechanics of a situation. So I often end up teaching people things like boundary setting, okay. how to set, how to set boundaries mm. in relationships, um, how to think about their practical situation so they can, you know, live and survive. And this is, this is not particularly spiritual. Well. It's just practical teachings. And an analogy is like, if your washing machine's broken, or if your car's broken down, you don't necessarily say, well, let me try and realize myself. You know, <laughs> my washing machine's flooding my house. Well, you know, why don't I um, yeah. pray to Bhagwan or something? Mm. Yes, you can pray to Bhagwan. That's not a bad thing to do. Mm. But also look at the washing machine, you know, get a get a plumber around or getting a, get a mechanic around. You know, also look at your car, you know, find out what's gone on with the car. You know, mm. And similarly, there are there are dynamics within a washing machine. There are mechanical parts. They're moving parts in a washing machine and in a car. Similarly, with your relationships, 
and your finances, they're moving parts there. They're, they're, they're different things at play and you can learn more about them and you can help yourself or you can, if you don't know about them, you can, you can find someone who does like a mechanic or a washing machine fixer. You can find somebody to help you with your mental health or physical health or relationship health or financial health. So don't, that's one thing I help people with a lot. I found recently and, and I happily I've, to say I've been quite successful, you know, which is good. You know, I've really helped people with their relationships because they over spiritualize things. Yeah. Yeah. Rather than just dealing with the practical aspects of things. And the two can go hand in hand. Absolutely. I wouldn't be one for that at all. I mean, even Bhagawan, when he was dying, am I right? His last, and Bhagawan is the most prolific guru. I think that he he's, if there was a top 10, he'd be the top one, I know, but, but that's the way it is. But I think his last words, Tommy, remind me of, or has anyone fed the peacock? Am I right? That oh, I didn't, I don't know that actually. I yeah, didn't know you're, that. You're, that's coming up as you're saying that. It's like, be practical, feed the bloody peacock. There was some peacock they used to hang around the ashram. Yeah. You know, so he had a sense of that actually too, you know. Um, oh, I believe so. I yeah, believe so. Yeah. yeah, he did have yeah. a very practical side to him. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Interesting. Thank you. I didn't know that. The yeah. Pe- the, pe- the peacock thing. I think I'm right. Yeah. If, any- if anybody wants to correct me, uh, leave him in the comments below. <laughs> but um, yeah. and, and enlighten me. Um, but uh, t- Tom, Tom you-, you hold discussions uh, about this and uh, you hold talks. Um, can you tell us a bit about them and where they are and where you hold them and things? Yeah. So we have twice weekly meetings on Zoom online twice a week. So every, at the moment, every Thursday and every Sunday, you'll find the details on my website, tomdas.com. And um, yeah, all are welcome. And we also are meeting, we're trying to meet once a month in London in southwest london and those meetings are also live streamed onto zoom and people on zoom can also ask questions so yeah it's mainly online meetings twice a week um we call them satsangs which basically means a spiritual meeting where we can hear bhagavan's teachings the purpose of which is to be eternally free and happy devoid of any suffering. That's the early purpose of the teaching, is to remove all suffering, discover what you truly are. And what we'll discover is our true nature is perfect love, happiness. Um, actually God, what we discover is what we are is actually God, the creator, the almighty. And so this is the teaching, you know. Nothing too grand, you know. Oh, nothing, nothing special. Nothing nothing too grand. (laughs) But this is the teaching. This is what the teaching is. This is what its purpose is. And this is what, and this is what the meeting's for. After the meeting, after the satsang, we have something called after satsang. Um, Yes, I know, very creatively named. Mm. Um, Where we get, where where people who attend the meeting can get a chance to talk to each other as well. So I kind of bow out and um, people who attend the meeting get to talk to each other. And it's been a wonderful thing because 
Mm. It can be quite a lonely, isolating journey. Mm. And the people who come to satsang, in my opinion at least, are just amazingly wonderful, open-hearted, non-judgmental people. We're all at different stages, you know, no, no, no two people are exactly the same. And it's just a wonderful group who, um, and many people have made connections and friends across the world through this after satsang group. It's only a small bunch of us, but lovely, lovely bunch of us. So anyone who's interested, do pop along. And there's no obligation to stay. You can, you can, you know, see if you like it. And if you like it, stay. And if you don't, you don't have to stay. You know, you just find what you want to, you know, I, w- I want people to find the teaching that they like, you know. So just come along and see if you like it. And the details at www.tomdas.com. Yeah. Tomdas.com, that's the one. Okay. And there's a lot of material there they can read as well. It's a nice website to go to, yeah. Gosh, yeah, tomdas.com has grown over the years. We get so many hits and views now, but pretty much any any question you have on the spiritual search, there's probably an article written on it on tomdas.com or a video or something. And there's also a list of recommended reading, um, which is a relatively carefully curated list of books and texts, some of which are ancient and some of which are quite modern which all give essentially the same teaching and point the way to liberation, free of clutter. And they try and be, I've just picked the books that I think are as clear as possible, but also take you the whole way and don't stop short, which is very rare, actually. You see, Ramana's teachings are very simple, but they're actually very rare teachings as well. And the more we explore the teachings, the more we come to see how different they are to other teachings out there and this is what gives them their liberating quality and again i'm not just saying that because i'm a devotee of bhagavan i'm you know and and my own story i i genuinely you know if i thought other teachers were teaching the same thing i'd put their books on the recommended reading list but the only ones i put in the recommended reading list are the ones i know of that really genuinely teach that pure teaching Okay. As we said right at the beginning, though, John, you know, all paths eventually lead back home in this, you know, in this spiritual drama that we're in. Mm. But some ways are more direct than others, you see. We wouldn't recommend that you go to the, the dodgy guru, the dodgy money-grabbing, power-grabbing, power-hungry guru, you know. But that might be part of your journey but it's not what we recommend you do. In the same way, the books I recommend are the ones I recommend. I don't recommend the other ones. But you might find other ones are a part of your journey, of course. Okay. That makes sense. Tom, it's been wonderful talking to you. Um, really, really easy, easy to to listen to and to talk to. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, John. You're very welcome. Thanks again for invite me lovely to meet you likewise and thanks to your family for for sparing the time for sparing you for an hour and a half appreciate oh. it yeah yeah no worries at all yeah thank you you're welcome
So I'm happy to be here. Happy to be here on a Saturday. So thanks, Tom, and uh, we'll have to say goodbye, and hopefully soon we we'll meet again, and we'll have another chance. Yes. Right. Thank you. All the best. Thank you for joining us on our podcast and we very much hope you enjoyed us. If you did, please subscribe for more on your chosen platform. And also, if you'd like to keep in contact, please hit us up on social media. So folks, until next time, please take care and we hope you join us soon.